We're going to read Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come together, we ask that you would help us through your word to learn all we can, but not just cerebrally, but we might translate that into gospel lives, gospel leadership, gospel action. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Okay, this is an extraordinarily important passage. Uh, Many Christians don't realise how important it is because they say, well, it's just about deacons and we've got deacons. Tick box, done it. That's it. What else am I going to learn from Acts chapter 6? Well, John Stott most helpfully put his finger on its strategic importance. Acts 2 and 3 is like Uh, D-Day. The gospel... The power of the Holy Spirit brings the new covenant alive. And all that Jesus did on the cross begins to be applied sovereignly, powerfully, amazingly, wonderfully. But the evil one didn't just take it and, oh, that's it then, I'll turn over and die. No, just as in June 1944, immediately there are counterattacks. Uh, uh, 21st Panzer Division started to try to drive the Allies off the beach and so on. We have three great counterattacks of the devil. And Stott picks up on the first one, from Acts chapter 4. Remember how Peter and James... Uh, Peter and John, you know, you mustn't preach in the name of Jesus. You know, we're going to put you to death, we're going to beat you up, we forbid it, blah de blah de blah Conflict and challenge from the outside. External persecution is the first attack on the life of the church. It is a vicious, nasty, effective strategy. There are many Christian leaders and churches today in places where, on pain of fine, imprisonment, petty bureaucracy, all the way to death, are living their Christian lives, trying to bring good news to their fellow human beings, and, and there's external persecution. It can be just nasty people in the street who throw rocks through your windows, beat your children up, kidnap your daughters, or it can be state-backed. And when it's state-backed, it can be particularly horrible. And Acts alerts us to that. In fact, Luke repeats the theme in chapter 5. Again, the apostles are persecuted, saying this does not go away. This is, this is one of Satan's great ways of trying to stop Gospel blessing. It can be horribly effective. You think of the way France is now, and you can trace that back to the way the Huguenots were hounded out 
hundreds of years ago. It's never been the same since. It's one of the most difficult places on earth, France, to, to, to grow gospel churches. Maybe things changing a bit now, but I've known friends who've spent lifetimes of, of their, their, their love, their ability, their commitment, and, and found it very hard to grow. Yeah. It's your mum. Oh. oh, no. Ray or mum? Oh, crumbs. Don't. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now, how is it met? Well, they meet together with, for prayer and, and they pray for boldness. They pray for courage. External persecution will require great courage, great confidence in the gospel, great trust in God, obedience and passion for people. We must obey God rather than man. That's not easy to say that. It's just not done by mere will. So that's the church meets external persecution and it meets it tremendously successfully. The second great attack is compromise and confusion on the inside. Internal corruption. If you can't legislate against the church and if you can't bully the church into silence just so you can get, you know, church leader sexually compromised with church member that can ruin a church's testimony. Uh, if you can get somebody who's a control freak and he's a bully boy as a leader, the whole church will stink to the community after a while. And dodgy money, which is the problem here. And dodgy money is always a bit complex, isn't it? It can be obvious lying and cheating and greed. And don't we know it? Sad to say, many of our non-Christian contemporaries have been put off the word evangelical, because you're like those guys on the God Channel. You know, you're just after our money. It's all one big scam. And it's very hard for us to explain, isn't it? I know it looks like that, but these people aren't preaching the same Jesus. It all looks to them. They look, yeah, it is. You're all the same, all the same kind. Dodgy money. Here, it's a bit more sophisticated, isn't it? You notice in the context, uh, in Acts chapter 4 how Barnabas is a, an outstanding example of generosity. And people nickname him son of encouragement. Then the next thing you've got Ananias and Sapphira. I just wonder if their lying over the money was not much because they were greedy, but because they coveted the reputation, but didn't want to pay the cost. Who knows? But it's not an accidental placement. Barnabas, Ananias and Sapphira... But this is the point. If you start tolerating lying in the covenant people of God, that will nullify the witness. Why? Because everybody will know. The bank manager will know. The person who did the deal will know. It's like, you said you gave that, but you, I know. You're lying. You'll know that if a church in a community gets a reputation for dodgy money, dodgy sex, dodgy power, some village churches have had their witness ruined for decades I became a Christian, I went to a little village church and there was some scandal in the 1950s that still some villagers will say, oh, that's what happened way back then. And they don't want to hear about Jesus because of that. Internal corruption. How's it, how, how's that counterattack met? Well, it's met with holy and... Uh, holy courage and moral integrity the Holy Spirit acts directly it's a warning right at the beginning of the life of the church that the church must take its moral stances 
seriously. It cannot tolerate, it mustn't tolerate known evil, for that will ruin gospel progress. Uh, most of the time that will involve, if there's, if there's obvious moral compromise, uh, it will involve some kind of church discipline and leaders need to be humble, but bold enough, courageous enough to take a stance. And that's how it's countered. And we're pretty alert, I guess. Most Christians are alert to sort of external persecution. Now, we don't face that much, but you know, our culture is more hostile now. It's a little bit more picky, a little bit, oh, you Christians, than it was maybe 30 years ago when I was um, become a Christian. Uh, internal corruption, but we don't pick up Acts 6. Acts 6, we just think, is not the same thing. But Stott argues, yes, it is. He argues that Acts 6 is it's the whole issue of growth and complexity and change. He calls it diversionary. It's like a diversionary aside, isn't it? Um, and we're going to drill down deep because as leaders, I guess many of you here, you elders, you're deacons, you're involved in some kind of church leadership, this passage is really important for you to understand something about your leadership. <coughs> Making decisions for the gospel. Now, I just want to drill down a bit deeper. Now, this is not going to come out, I don't think, too clearly. It's a bit small. So I might just... Uh, I'll just talk it through. If you, can, you, can you see that? Yeah? Okay. It's the first thing to note about the context. So that's the context, okay? This is the third great satanic counterattack. If you're a history, you know, a bit of an anorak like I am, this is the equivalent to the, the channel storm, okay? You know the Germans are going to fight back, but what you don't know is that a channel storm might do more damage than all the might of the Wehrmacht. You know that the channel storm nearly destroyed the invasion of Europe. Uh, one of the Mulberry Harbours was completely wrecked. The, the other one just about kept... And that was the supply chain. If that had gone, we'd have been pushed back into the sea. Acts 6 is the equivalent of like out of nowhere. You don't expect it. You don't see it coming. It's not coming from any obvious place. But it's a cataclysmic danger for the church. Now notice the pain. It's when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews. It's pain as the church is growing. It's growing, and that's why you don't expect the pain. You see, if the church is shrinking, you all know, if our church lost 20 members, we go, oh my goodness. If you gain 20 people, we go, oh great. But don't you realise, by growing, you might actually bring more difficulties. If your church doubled in size, which everyone like, Lord, please convert, please convert. When then God does, you go, oh, I didn't mean it quite like that, Lord. I didn't mean quite so many strangers, all wanting to have a say in our lovely church, which was so friendly and welcoming. And everything changes and we don't like it. Growing pain is the most surprising of the pains of Acts chapter 4, 5 and 6. It's as the church is increasing that things get very difficult. And the... And the uh, it's, it's the word grumbling. You see the word complaint here? It's a bit tame. It's a... Even on the surface of it, this is serious, isn't it? We've got something to do with ethnicity and, and identity. Grecian versus Hebraic speakers. Now, you, you may have no big deal about that, but if you ever go to a bilingual place, 
You know how prickly it can get? Whose language is going to win? Now, how many of you go to Wales on holiday? And when you go to the church, what would you feel like if they said, I know you're English here tonight, but today we speak in Welsh and you just have to learn, we'll tell you later what we're talking about. You really feel, don't you? What? what? You're just like, come on, this is our country. You should be speaking English. Well, no, we're Welsh speakers here. So too bad, you're going to have to learn to listen and be patient. Or, or vice versa, it could be anything, couldn't it? Language can be a big kind of identity marker. Because language isn't just what I say to communicate, it's who I am, it's who I belong to. So there's a kind of fairly serious sort of, ooh, but on top of that is an age thing, and like, it's my gran, my old, needy, widowed gran, who is hungry. We're all very passionate about families, especially the most vulnerable. And you guys are overlooking it. Is that deliberate? Are you being biased, or are you just incompetent, useless? What is it? What is it with you leaders? Can't you even get loaves of bread? Or is there a subtle bias going on? He can imagine that. You see. Now look, we Gentiles haven't even got... The, the Jews are quite happily splitting the church apart without us Gentiles being added in, you see. The church could already become two churches. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Except in Jerusalem now there's that church and this church. And it's all getting a bit niggly. Now that's on the surface of it. But Luke actually signals something a little bit more serious. The word he uses here is the same word, the Septuagint. Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible uses to talk about the first time people grumbled about food. When was that? Well, just after the exodus, they grumbled about bread. The grumbling about bread last time led to years and years and years of wasted lives, didn't it? They were wandering around the desert until they all died because the grumbling was such an affront to God. It was such, such ingratitude in the face of his gracious generosity. It was such an insult to God's lordship that not one of them saw the promised land. It's the same word that Luke and it's almost like Luke is saying, do you remember last time, the old covenant people of God? Which was like a, it was like a pre-run of the real thing. It was like an airfix kit of what was when they were going to be real. The old covenant was like a model. God releases slaves from Egypt. And in the new covenant, God releases from you from a deeper slavery to a greater freedom. And it's as if, not again. The newly delivered slaves... Slaves of sin are now children of God. What are they doing? They're doing it all over again. They're grumbling about food, about bread, again. Oh no, this is disastrous. Because last time it was hopeless. That's the danger Luke is flagging up. He's saying, oh no. This is like, oh no moment, you see. This is not a minor problem. This could have split the church down the middle. It could have brought the church under the judgment of God. Because last time it did. The whole people of God were judged because of the evil of grumbling. Okay? That's the context. Growing takes you by surprise. I, I, I say to church leaders, sometimes I say, you know people pray for growth, they don't mean it. Because when it happens, they all grumble. They don't see you as much as they used to. Things have to change. Uh, Mark Driscoll got a brilliant thing. I, sh- I should have used it. It took back complexity. You know in a conversation of three people, you to me, me to you, there's six possible conversations going on. In a group of 50, 
can't remember the figures off by hand. There's sort of like sort of five and a half thousand conversations in a group of 50. In a group of 400, which is eight times bigger, okay, only eight times bigger, it's 60 times more conversations going on. And this is one of the problems. As churches grow, they might grow numerically like this, slowly. Okay? So three conversations, you know. So by the time you get to 100, twice the size of 50, but, but the numbers of the, the complexity then goes like that. It's really scary. And that's why a church of 400 feels incredibly busy. Nobody knows what's going on. Nobody recognises everybody. Blah, 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 blah. It's not just eight times bigger. It's 60 times more complicated. And that is what's happening to Jerusalem. As the thing's growing, it's getting so complicated that it's like, uh-oh, what's being dropped? What's being lost? And that's why many people, as a church grows, get very uncomfortable with the growth. Each new group of 10 or 20 people can make the thing feel, ooh. So growing pains, very surprising. Then this thing about grumbling. Now, the disciples, the apostles, the leaders, then show us great gospel leadership in action. You just read this and you miss it. You see, what's the first thing they do? Well, what could they have done? They could have taken it very personally. Most of us do. When somebody moans at us, we go deep in our hearts, we go, Lord, don't they understand how hard I'm working? I'm, I'm tired. I'm, I'm, you know, I've got tons of other responsibilities. You know, don't they understand that? Lord, can't you tell them? Can I tell them? Please, Lord, can I tell them? Because I can't cope with this. I get moan, moan, moan all the time. My kids moan at me. My wife doesn't see me enough. And you know, now members are moaning and they're going sideways. Oh my goodness, this is just hopeless. And we feel like we want to justify ourselves and explain how difficult life is. They don't do that. They listen and they establish their priorities. <coughs> now, this is really important. There's a priority for the word. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word. Okay? So they say, look, word, we leaders have got to get the word out because it's the word that brings people to faith and grows people in the faith. It's a high priority. Now this is where the mistake's made. I met many pastors made a mistake here. They go, look, look at it, Ray, what does it say? It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Garçon, give me the bill, please. You know, it's like, how could you compare the preaching of the everlasting gospel to a waiter who brings you the coffee? I mean, come on. It's obvious. Leaders have got to be in the word. Because the deed, you know, this word stuff, this ministry, that's just a second. What they say to the church is, look, the word is central. The rest of it is just filler. No, that's not what they say. We can be tricked by the language here. They are not demeaning the ministry of waiting on tables, the diakonos, the service. It's not word instead of deed. Word far more important than deed. Word right at the centre and deed are peripheral. It's word and deed. How do we know that? Because they say so. What did John say? If you see a brother in need and you say, bless you brother, he said, you deny the faith. How can the love of God be in you? If you see a hungry brother and not feed him, you deny the faith. Peter, later on, in, uh, in 1 Peter 4, um, he never forgets this, does he? He knows this, nearly, this is nearly a train wreck for the whole church. 
And he talks about our gifts. He said, if, if uh, each one... Now, oh, yeah, just, just turn to 1 Peter 4. It's a really important passage, actually. 1 Peter 4, 7. Three things all Christians need to be into. Three common Christian graces. So he tells us in verse 7, be clear-minded and self-controlled so you can pray. All Christians pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Christians love one another with a real love, not a plastic smile love. A willingness to forgive. Real love. And then verse 9, offer hospitality to one another grumbling. That is not a gift. That is not some Christians have got the gift of hospitality. That's an every Christian grace. If I eat at the table of the Lord, I will long for other people to eat at my table. Hospitality, that sort of eating with one another, is the great sign of friendship, love and acceptance. If you say, I love you, but I don't eat, you'll come around to my house, so I'm not going to eat with you. How can it be? We eat around the table of the Lord, we want to eat at each other's tables. Hebrews 13 does exactly the same, just a slightly different order, and if you pick it up, Hebrews 13.1. Keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers. By so, so I'm doing, people have entertained angels without knowing. Remember those in prison. See the same triumvirate love in Hebrews. It's uh, uh, love, hospitality and prayers. Here is pray, love, hospitality. Hospitality, feeding people, is not an added bonus for strong Christians. It's a basic Christian grace. What did Jesus say? They'll know you're my disciples because you gave a cup of cold water in my name. No giving of cups of cold water. You don't belong to me. Sheep and goats are separated out because you came and fed me. But when did we do that to you, Lord? In that you did it to the least of these. You did it to me. It's a great sign of a Christian. I pray, I love, and I'm hospitable. That's important, isn't it? So hospitality is not off the agenda. In fact, leaders have to excel What they're doing in Act 6 is not saying hospitality doesn't matter. They're saying it's not our organisational priority as leaders. All leaders have to excel in hospitality. But organisationally, we've now got to think smart. We've got to both plan for word and we've got to plan for deed. Notice how he goes on in chapter uh, 4 in Luke uh, 1 Peter 4. Each one should use whatever gift... uh, uh, Each one should uh, use whatever gift he has received... To serve others. See that word? Diakonos. Faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks. And if anyone serves. He doesn't say speaking is superior. Serving is inferior. He says no, they're both gifts of God's grace. You may have a gift of word. You may have a gift of service. And the church in Acts 6 is organising that. It's not saying word's really important. Forget the deed. I've known some church leaders of read Acts 6 and say look. Look. Don't expect me to get involved in all this stuff, sorting out all this. I, I just, I'm the minister of the word. I give myself to prayer and the ministry of the word. That's not my business. Now, Acts 6 tells us that the leaders set the priority of both word and deed. They just make sure that their own personal priorities as a leadership team are clear. For them, they've been given word gifting. They've got to commit themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. But making sure that the church, as an organisation, is led well by them to make sure the deed is done as well. See, When they delegate, I don't like that word delegate. Delegate means this is a naff job, you do it. <laughs> yeah, has any leader ever done that to you? Here's some Xeroxing. 
I've got valuable time, yours is not valuable, go and do the Xerox things. Isn't it like, it's that kind of feel about it? It's not that feel. Jane, uh, John says, look, this is so important. If we don't do this, we deny the faith, we split the church. This is not a low priority. It's a high priority. It's not our priority. It's the church's priority to do word and deed. We leaders have got to make sure that's organised. This is our plan. This is our plan. They come up with a genius of a plan. Notice this, they take initiative. They don't delegate the leading through this problem. They problem solve as a leadership team. Leadership teams have to solve problems. One of them is, how are we going to organise word and deed in our church? Well, don't ask me, I'm just the pastor. Well, I'm sorry, it is your job. You have to help us lead through some of these practical issues. And they come up with, they take the initiative, they seize the initiative. Notice that verse 11, brothers, here's our plan. They come up with an initiative and they gain some membership ownership. Brothers, choose amongst yourselves. So the planning is really important. Leaders, there's a sort of antipathy to planning in British evangelicalism. Somehow it's not very godly, it's not very spiritual, it feels it's very human. Well, they plan. They come up with a plan. It's, you know, this is, this is our plan to solve this problem. And it involved getting some ownership. I, 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 it's really important, isn't it? Some leaders, once they get this leadership thing, like basically you're just fodder. You just do as you're told. We come up with the plans, we're the leaders. No, this leadership team, so here's a plan. Come on, what do you think? Brothers. And the brothers all approve. Notice that as they gain ownership. This proposal pleased the whole group. Uh, Why not gain ownership when you can? Why not give as much power away as you can? Why not make decisions as, as it were, trickle down as much as you possibly can? I I like the word empowerment rather than delegation. I know it's not much difference. But as a leader, when I start talking to other leaders about empower, what does that say? It says, I'm responsible for your success. I want you to succeed in this. I'm going to give you all you need to get this thing to happen. Delegation means, look, it's on my in-tray. It's now on your in-tray. Ha-ha. Bye-bye. Don't come and moan. Except I'll come and moan at you if you get it wrong. You do know that, won't you? I will come and moan at you if you get it wrong. That's how most deacons function, actually. Our deacons felt we were control, command and control people. And when anything went wrong... You get a visit from a deacon who'd say, you're a really wonderful job, and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's great, we really appreciate it. And everybody goes, yeah, come on, I know there's a but coming. So what's the but? Well, yeah, but the last few months you haven't done it. You know, people feel like deacons are there to tick them off. Whereas empowerment, people are, we're here to help you succeed. How can we help you to succeed? What do you need? Do you need new kit? Do you need some new ideas, do you need some support, do you need some money, do you want to pray for us, what can we do to help you succeed in the task that you've, you've said you'd do. They get some great ownership. And they form a team, they form a team, and the team's empowered. The team, um, you choose brothers, seven men, full of, full of the Holy Spirit, we'll turn this responsibility over to them, we'll We'll delegate, we'll empower them, we'll give, and then we can then concentrate on what we've got to concentrate on because we know that they'll do what has to be done by our organisation. Uh, there's this slight kind of... Hmm, I don't know what, where you're coming from, I don't know what you read. There's a slight 
tendency amongst the English to settle for either or thinking all the time, either with family, and it's cosy and it's friendly and it's chilled, or we're a church that's program driven and it's oh, machine like. It's kind of either or rather than both and. And again, our vision of family tends to be mum, dad, and a couple of kids, and it's lovely. I've got a mate who's got eight kids. I knew a woman, well, I knew of a woman. I didn't know her personally. She had 20 and 19 lived through to adulthood. Is, she, is that a family? Yeah. Mum, dad, 19 kids. It's a different kind of family. Was it well organised? You have to be. See, the more kids you have, you, just get, you get organised. Organisation versus warm family life? No, it's just... The more you have, the more organised you've got to get. We pitch organisation versus... Uh, there's a book on the... Mo- I don't want to uh, tread on toes or anything. I like to turn the tape off. Trellis and the Vine, come across that one. It's a great book. There's loads of great things in there. But I have a bit of a slight beef about the overarching metaphor. Like, if you said, like, do you want trellis or vine? That's obvious, the vine. You've got to be in the vine. If you're not in the vine, you don't bear full fruit. Trellis is a sort of afterthought. But that's the metaphor. What if you used a different metaphor? Would you say skeleton or blood supply? Which one do you want? I think I'd rather have both, actually. <laughs> See? To function, I need both. The church here is organised, but it's organically growing too. It's, it's alive with life, but it's organised. And they said it organised around teams. Now, uh, I talk to churches about teams a lot because it seems to me that uh, a lot of the New Testament stuff is done with groups of people. Uh, the Apostle Paul, when he's on his own, he, he often says, I'm on my own, please Timothy, come quick. Or, it, it's unusual for him to be on his own. He always works with teams of people. Tons of stuff in the New Testament is done with teams of people. When I ask Christians, they go, yeah, we have teams. I, I was at a big church not long ago, actually. And I said, yeah, we have a team. Tell me about your team. Like, yeah, we have teams. Oh, how do they find Well, our names are on a rotor. We turn up and do our bit. I go, do you ever meet? No, no, we don't do it. Who's the leader? We don't know. Just names on a rotor. That's the team. We're the crash team or the coffee team. Just name on a rotor. That is not a team. That is a rotor. A rotor is not a team. A team gets together, talks about what it's going to do, and so on. We'll talk about next time. It's how a big church... You know this lesson, don't you? No church just grows bigger. Big churches grow smaller. That's how they grow. You grow bigger by growing smaller. You just grow loads and loads of small things that happen to be part of this big thing. So you grow loads of home groups. You grow loads of teams. Teams do everything in a, in a big church. Not a whole load of people on a rotor. After a while, if you put people on a rotor in a big church, after a while they'll be all demotivated, discouraged, frustrated. It's like, oh, I'm on the rotor again. Oh, I, don't, oh, I could skip it. Nobody knows. That kind of. Whereas teams is how it's done. Here's a team. And there's all kinds of reasons why this team's a great team. They're all basically uh, Greek speaking names and so on. And the whole church is, yeah, great. And the team is owned and recognised and set on. Now, what happens when the team works? Oh, the people are fed, obviously. The team does their job. So there's unity in the church and the apostles are freed up and so the word spreads. Now notice Luke's little comment here. The word of God, so, there's a connection word there, because of this. It's not accidental. It's not like coterminous but unrelated. Now, Because the church sorted out word and deed, organised well, got teams going, 
The job got done, both word and deed, and the church grew. There's a connectivity. They solved the problem. They came up with the solution. They activated it, and so the church grew. Both, if I can put it like this, in quality, uh, quantity, the numbers increased rapidly. And then Luke adds this little throwaway, doesn't he? And quality. The priests are getting converted. My goodness. The priests are getting converted. That is the, you know, it's almost like the high point of whatever happens in Jerusalem is by the end of, by the end of these counterattacks of the devil, he scored some own goals, hasn't he? What an own goal that is. I've tried to shut the church up, and by the end of it, some of the people that are really in my pocket, religious professionals who haven't believed Jesus when he was on earth, are now becoming to believe in the Messiah. Wow, brilliant. That's Luke's take on it. Now look, here's the, the pointers. You can just about see that. Pointer one. Some problems can't be solved by using our major gifts. Their major calling is it to pray and preach. Okay? Now notice, this is really important. They don't solve this problem by using either of their main gifting come responsibility. They don't call for a month of prayer. Let's pray about this. And nor do they have a series of sermons on contentment, especially for Greek speaking widows. See? They, they, they work this one out. This will not go away no matter how much you pray and how much you preach. It won't go away. Now that's really important, isn't it? Because Acts 4, they prayed. Acts 5, they acted. Here, Acts 6, they go, do you know what? No amount of preaching and no amount of prayer. Is, this, is, this needs some management. This needs some leadership. Now, this is huge. Many church leaders, hearing the grumblings of verse 1, would have applied the solution of chapter 5. They would have at least stopped grumbling, stopped moaning, and if you keep grumbling and you keep moaning, we'll, we'll church discipline you, or we'll have a word, or we'll, you know, whatever. You can meet an Acts, if you get Acts 6 misdiagnosed, if you misinterpret the groans and moans that come as a church goes forward as a defiance of God and you meet it wrongly, you could destroy the church with the wrong solution. It would have been, knowing the, knowing the, new, the Old Testament background, it would have been so easy to have misdiagnosed Acts 6. When people are moaning when the church is growing, don't misdiagnose it. It's just a result of complexity. It's just a result of the church getting busy, busy, busy and people not having to cope with it. It's not people fundamentally rebelling against God, even though it looked like it. And the disciples, the apostles, brilliantly understood the difference between where they were and where the people of God were in the Old Testament. Having an open Bible, I bet you'd have made that mistake when you go, look, look here it is, this is what they did last time. Look at Exodus, look at Numbers, look at Deuteronomy. My goodness, look what happened. You lot better stop moaning now. They didn't do that. They go, yeah, the moans is actually a symptom that we're not very well organised. We've got to get organised, guys. Let's not take it personally. Let's not rebuke these people. Actually, these kinds of moans are a different kind of moan. They're the moan that comes from people being a little bit confused and a little bit bewildered and a little bit stretched. You know how it is in a balloon. When you start blowing the balloon, everybody's closely... And as the balloon gets bigger, everybody gets further apart from one another and just doesn't feel the same thing. It's just... That kind of, oh, I feel stretched and I feel confused and pastor, I don't know what's going on. 
And you don't take that personally. You go, do you know what? We've just got to get organised differently. We've got to think carefully about this. Now that kind of complexity, mishandled, can create a lot of pain in the church. They realise they have to act as leaders. That part of their job is not just to preach and pray, it is also to lead, manage, organise the church well. It's not an excuse for full-time Christian leaders to retreat into the study and say, don't ask me about all this messy stuff to do with people moaning in our church. Don't ask me to get involved in setting up teams. Don't ask me to get involved in training team leaders. Don't ask me to understand how teams work and the team dynamics. Don't ask me, I'm just a preacher, pastor. Well, you aren't a New Testament leader then because this lot knew how to do it. They did know how to pastor. They did know how to preach. But they also knew how to organise well. That's why Acts 6 is so important, you see. Because in our training, very few of us get trained to sort these kind of problems out. But this is one of the three great counterattacks of the devil. It's one of the three great counterattacks of the devil. Church life getting confusing is a counterattack of the devil. It can derail the gospel just like being thrown in prison or getting in bed with the, the choir leader, you see. It's like... Surely not yet. Luke is saying, yes, this could have destroyed the church. But this leadership team were brilliantly able to deal with it. Because they could see that God had called them to lead the church to solve some of these kind of problems. So we need a gift mix to carry out tasks, don't we? The elders could have done it. They could quite capably deliver food if they had nothing else to do. But they had other things to do. So they had to organise You do that, we'll do that. We're not more important than you, just different. Now most churches have got that embryonically, but it's not thought about. It's not consciously done. So consequently we kind of feel our way forward and often we we mess up. Church leadership is made up of three skills or three qualities. There's the prophetic, if I can call it that. The prophetic, the word. And we need to be training people in the word. Some of us have the privilege of being released from earning our bread in another way and being paid by the Christians to learn how to bring God's word well. And that's really important. And then there's the priestly. We need to to get alongside people, how to compassionately help them how to touch their hearts with gospel motivation, how to sympathise, how to pray with them, how to cry with them, how to rejoice with them. But the one that we're not very good at is what we might call kingly leadership. I meet many young guys in training at seminary and so on. They get a lot of help with the prophetic. You know, they do church history and learn the Greek and Hebrew. They do tons and tons of prophetic. They get a little bit of priestly. This is how you get alongside a, a woman whose husband's just died. Not much, maybe one lecture. How to help somebody through, you know, how to organise a funeral and stuff like that. You know, that kind of stuff, that's fine. Uh, how to help somebody who's got some sort of mental problems. Somebody whose marriage is breaking up. A little bit of help there. But not, not perhaps as much as comes in real life. But they get virtually no help with leadership. Virtually zero. Uh, top college in uh, the country uh, has just started making this a little bit more prominent. Another one had a... Uh, they were training free church leaders. They had a, a leadership track. It was optional. And only 40% of the guys did it. 
Now that's got to be nuts. That's got to be complete. This should be absolutely mandatory. You need to know this because if you don't know how to lead the church with some of this stuff, it can wreck your church. What? He's joking. Read Acts 6. That's what Luke is saying. Because Acts 6 is a genius of passage. It's seven verses. And all that's in seven verses. I never saw it before. I didn't know it was there. Well, it is there. And Luke is saying this group of leaders had a fantastic balance between prophet, priest, and king. They excelled in all three areas. They knew the word had to get out, and it kept going out, and many more people became Christians. But priestly, they handled people well, didn't they? And the people came to them, they didn't stamp them out, and like, what are you doing? They were gentle and gracious and didn't take it personally. But what got them through the problem was a whole load of wise, kingly, organisational nows. In fact, if you took out the Bible references and wrote this up as a story, it would make management training books every time. How to take your organisation through a threat that could kill it. And you go, well, that's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant, isn't it? Now, I don't know about you, but nobody told me this when I was young. I didn't, I didn't get some of this until I was in my mid-fifties when our church got to that where everybody was moaning at me all the time. Our church is growing away, but it's, how come it feels so awful? Why is it not like it used to be? Why can't we go back to the good old days? Blah, 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 blah. I, mean, I don't know, I don't know. Because nobody's told me about this. Till I went to a seminar one day I shouldn't have been at, and a bloke put his finger on this. I go, ah. Please help me, because this is what actually held our church up for years. And we talked it through, we set up teams, and all of a sudden, the church began to grow again, just like it did in Acts 6. And it was an organisational blockage. And it just needed, and it didn't need great kingly leaders. It's not like, you know, the guru. It's just like ordinary. It wasn't, but it was just, nobody pointed it out to me. So if you're in an elder or a deacon situation, you will be facing some of this. Absolutely guaranteed. An English church has been absolutely useless at facing Act 6 type problems because we're not can-do people. We're pietistic. Let's pray a lot about it. But we're not Act 6. Brothers elsewhere, Australia and the rest of they, they like, they, this is like meat and drink for them, but it isn't for us. But maybe we could help ourselves get a few more skills. We need a combination, I put it there, of grace, priestly, and character, and skill. Those three areas all the time interact. Okay, enough of me. Let's, uh, now, I've got some questions on the back. You might want to take one of those or two of those, or you might just want any comments, any questions, any observations from your own experience. Anything, anybody want to chip in? I guess just to say that, um, so I'm currently in ministerial training right now. Yeah, I okay. really uh, agree with your point that most of it is training for word ministry. Yeah, yeah. Very little training for anything else. But I think also that reaches further back into selection and who we tap on the shoulder and who we think about might be um, somebody to think about sending an answer a direction that we will tend to identify and pick people based on experience of them in word ministry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I mean, I think that's, that's perfectly fine. Um, but you know, we need people with the. You know, if anyone speaks, you must speak as if speaking the very words of God. You know, it's just really important that they have competency to handle the word of God and a capability to convey it. That's massive, and that's a huge thing. But a leadership team also needs to go. Do you know? Here's a problem. We we need also to get some of this kind of from. Yeah. How do we get it? That's interesting, isn't it? How do we get this kind of training? Work alongside other leaders who already do it.
Ah, that's how it's picked up, yeah. I think combined with that, I mean, although these three elements of leadership um, can crystallise in a team and different yes. strengths, yes. it's really important to understand in the team who has those strengths and how, as a group, can you work together to make sure that all those areas come? Yeah, you're right. I think it's just a, it's an important thing that each leader... I mean, it's so good somebody's saying, I, 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 I love preaching the word, but I, help pe- I hate people. I, you know, I say, I Each leader has got to have a combination of this, but they will be different strengths. Okay? So it's not, again, remember, um, uh, John Frame, he doesn't say this is either or. These are all at the same time, but, but they will vary in their strengths. Yeah. I just wanted to come back on, you mentioned leadership. Training is significant. Yeah. I think leadership gifting is significant yes. as well. Yes. Yeah. That's right. So now in the gifting zone, we already know that all elements have to be apt to teach. Okay? We all know that. So they all have to have some kind of prophetic ability. I, I use prophetic small p if you like. You know, I'm not talking about gifts and you know as a word. You know what I mean? Prophetic is just an organizational scheme like it's word based. They've got to be apt to teach. But when Paul talks in Timothy, he says some of them will labour in word and doctrine. Some of them will have more gifting. If you've got six elders and you only can support two, which one do you choose? Choose the one with the strongest Bible teaching gifts. Even in an eldership, it, it won't be uniform. It's not like clones. There'll be a difference of gifting in an eldership. And if you've got limited money, you've got to make a choice. So make sure you choose the one with the strongest word. Or do- have to teach. That's one of the qualifications. All got to be able to minister the word. Some are more capable than others, and that will be true in these other zones. If you say, "Look, I, I love ministering the word, but I'm useless. I can't organise. I can't fight my way out of a paper bag," you shouldn't be in the eldership. Why? Because you ought to be able to manage your own family well. You've got to be a kingly leader, but you've got to manage your own family well. If you can't do that, you shouldn't be in the leadership. Whatever gifting you've got, you may have your gift used, but you shouldn't be in the eldership of the church. Because it's a basic qualification. A bit like people. I hate people. I always fight with people. Well, not a brawler. Shouldn't be in the eldership. If you're always moaning and groaning and fighting against people, well, you may have gifts that God can use, but not in an eldership. Because all elders have to have these in principle, but some elders will excel. And that's how you work as a team. Uh, team leadership's everywhere in the New Testament. And teams... Cover one another's weaknesses, basically, don't they? You cover my weaknesses are covered by your strengths, but they're not watertight compartments. You don't want an elder to say, "Look, I, I, don't, I don't like people, and I don't like ministry and work, but I'm a great organizer." You say, "Well, you shouldn't be in our eldership because they're not three zones, but your gifting may be stronger." Yeah, and eldership <coughs> work well. Yeah, you'll have some with stronger gifts than others, and that's really important. Yeah, thanks. Right, so presumably it's trickled down to different ministry areas, so it's unworthy people who won't be able to deacons, but they may be involved yeah. in different ministries or different Yeah, the, the, the parallel passage to this in the Old Testament, this kind of wisdom, it's a wisdom thing, this, you see. You can't, it, there's no kind of, this is not, this is the one prescribed way of doing it. I don't think Acts 6 is prescriptive. So I know some churches say, we have seven deacons because they had seven deacons in Acts. You know, huh? As if that's it, once that's it, not allowed less than seven, not allowed more than seven, because in Acts 6, it's not, I don't think Acts is being that prescriptive, it's being descriptive of a wisdom principle. What's the equivalent in the Old Testament? Jethro, with Moses in uh, Exodus 19. It is a phenomenal passage, 
And do you know why it's phenomenal? Because God prescribes everything. It's just before the giving of the law. And the law prescribes detail. Blue pomegranates, Francis Schaeffer used to say, have a purpose. They're not naturally blue, but when God makes them for the high priest's robe, they'll be blue. And if you broke those commands, you were in serious trouble. Nadab and Abihu mixed up incense, not a way that God wanted it, and they died under God's judgment. The laws were serious. Okay? So here it is. Here is the God prescribing laws. And then this non-covenantal outsider comes along and says, hold on a minute. You, you, Moses, you're going to have a breakdown here. You can, mate, my son-in-law, in fact, he's telling his son-in-law off, isn't he, basically? He's saying, look, I can see what you can't see. You're just not going to be able to do this for much longer. People are getting neglected. The whole people of God are just grinding to a halt and you're going to die, die young in. Son, you've got to get organised. Organise around tens, hun, uh, tens, fifties, hundreds and thousands. Appoint leaders all over the place and then a ten leader can look after people intimately and relationally and a fifty leader can organise a medium-sized group. And, and, it's like, and Moses does as he's told and then Jethro just disappears off the face of history. Now, Jethro's God-fearing he, he, it looks like he's a believer. I don't think he isn't a believer. I think he looks like he's a believer. He praises God. And, but he's not a, non, he's a non-covenantal member. He's not part of the people of God. He disappears back to his own country. And, and it's almost God is saying, look, I prescribe tons, but I'm also leaving you this wisdom thing. And you're going to learn wisdom <coughs> from all over the place. And you've learned it from Jethro, who just taught you how to organise clever so that you get your life back and the people of God are led well. And it's almost as if God is saying, now look, there will be other wisdom insights from all over the place. They're not to be rejected. Their wisdom is not morally required. It's not like you must morally do what they say. It's wisdom. You can take it or leave it. It might be helpful, it might not be helpful. Yeah. So, one observation I made at uh, a particular church, and um, I had a very strong idea of vision for the church, yeah. and a particular program that happened every year. And it's almost as though if people had a particular gifts didn't fit into that vision, somehow they weren't part of the church. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's just, just observation. Yeah, yeah, you've got to be. Yeah, I think I think what Moses shows us that he, he knows how to mobilise loads of people. So it's not like you fit in with what I want, or that's it. There's this wisdom thing going on, and they, they organise brilliantly around small groups of people, tens, fifties, hundreds, thousands, and the job gets done. The people get organised. Now, what we've got to ask ourselves, what are the equivalents of our Jethros today? Are there Jethros out there that can help us when we come across things that God has not prescribed and says, look, my children, use some wisdom. Act 6 is wisdom in practice. What's our equivalent? <laughs> now, you may face a building program. You might just need somebody who knows about how to do buildings and how to raise money. or You, you might have somebody who knows how to just help with counselling really complicated issues. You might know, you might know somebody who can organise how to help widows really well. Use their wisdom. So there's lots and lots of... And deacons particularly need to know how to harness this kind of wisdom because a lot of their tasks are practical tasks that need to be carried out well. So you can learn wisdom from all kinds of other people. There's a, there is a real theological confusion about what we call the, the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture... A sufficient scripture is teaching that we can learn from outside wisdom. Okay? Sufficient scripture says, look, there's outside wisdom. Jethro is a great example. And there'll be our equivalents today. Um, I, I, I've got a book coming out. 
in about a month's time called Ready Steady Grow and uh, IVP doing it and uh, if you want to buy one you can I don't make much money <laughs> um, but in that I quote Clive Woodward do you know Clive Woodward the, he led the, um, the coach of the successful England rugby uh, World Cup winners he talked about these critical non-essentials he talked about little things off the pitch that could help the players perform on the pitch to their highest level so he talked about every player had a laptop so you could email home uh, they had team rules uh, they closed the door with a quarter of an hour to go if you weren't in the room with a quarter of an hour to go you're outside the meeting you're out they had all kinds of little rules they had their own chef who prepared all the food so that nobody got food poisoning from some dodgy hotel or from some Australian who's just trying to <laughs> joke in um, but he, he said you add up hundreds and hundreds of those little critical non-essentials they, they're not rugby on the pitch, but you add them up. Now, what are your church critical non-essentials? Well, in our church, we had a visitor come. Uh, there's a good friend of mine who's a minister. He's visiting us. I said, you know, tell us about the church. We all, he said, I, I couldn't find you. I said, what do you mean? I said, I told you where the church is. He said, I got to the car park. We're in a big school. He said, I have no, there's no signage. I said, what do you mean there's no, is there any signage? He said, there's no signage. I said, well, why don't you follow all the people? He said, because I didn't know they were going to the church. I, I, honestly, Ray, I found it really hard to find the building. I thought, oh my goodness. You imagine, now he's a Christian who wanted to come. You imagine if you're a non-Christian, you go, oh, give up, I won't go. It's a little critical non-essential. Somebody could make the decision to come under the word of God because of a sign or a lack of it. I, I am really grateful for Evangelical Free Church at the end of Magdalen Road. Because I came in the wrong end. Because my sat-nav told me, because I didn't know what number you were, so I put number one, which is the big Christian centre at the other end, isn't it? You know, I don't think it's this one. And then it's like, oh, there's no entry. Oh, my goodness. How do you get into this place? Where is it? I don't know. So I went round the loop. And I saw a sign. Ah, oh, hallelujah moment. I'm here. I'm not going to have it. A sign helped me find you. Coming along the road. <laughs> it's inscribed up there on the stone outside. It's kind of easily read it. But I thought, that must be, that must be, that must be it. But just a little sign. You know. Coffee, some, I saw some really nice real coffee somewhere, it was really good. But on a Sunday, you know, real coffee or you know, cheap coffee? Do you know what do you do? Well, people know it's a little critical non essential. Okay. We have donuts at our 9.15 service, but they don't get them at 11.15 service. But uh, does that matter? No, not really. But you know, people say, do you know, the donut it just makes me real friendly guys, friendly people. You will have some of those. External wisdom that could help people make a journey towards faith in Christ. 